0: Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15, and today we've come to the point in our text of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you first of all that you gave your son for us, and then, Lord, that you rose him from the dead, that he has been raised, that he is a living God, a living Savior and that he has given us abundant life. And we pray that today we would grasp the reality of that, that you would move us into a new depth of understanding with regards to uh, the resurrected life and living for you and what it means that Jesus rose for us. Lord, I pray that you would build our faith as we speak about it over the next couple of weeks, and that you transform our lives, that we would begin to live resurrected lives, sin no longer having power over us, but us being new creations in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, as we look into your word, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to us powerfully. I ask that every word that comes from these lips would be directly from your throne, that they would be yours and not my own, and that they would impact the world around us for your glory as they work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. And the resurrection is the most important fact in Christianity. Understand that without the resurrection, the cross would be meaningless. It is the singular most important event in Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible declares explicitly that without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. And in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Come Easter time, we celebrate Good Friday, and we call it Good Friday, but we could only call it Good Friday because Sunday came. If there was no Sunday, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then it was horrific Friday because Jesus died a worthless death and we are still in our sins. But because he rose again, we can be absolutely sure today that we have forgiveness, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus, that the power of sin over us is broken, that the power of death is broken, and that we have the gift of eternal life. It all has to do with the resurrection and so because he did rise again, we know that our faith is precious. And we do know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most provable facts in antiquity. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the fact that it is reasonable, historically speaking, to believe in his resurrection. I want you to be mindful of the fact that his resurrection is the proof of his identity. It says in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Who is Jesus? The whole world is asking, they want to know what is his identity. They would love to place him alongside a whole lot of other spiritual leaders. But the Bible declares that he is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, <clears throat> excuse me. Therefore, he is set apart from anyone else in history. You must understand that. There have been religious leaders that have made bold claims, but none has ever suggested that they would die on your behalf. Most other religious leaders want you to die for them. Jesus said, I will die for you, and I will rise again on the third day, and he did just that. No one in history has ever suggested that, much less done that. Therefore, The words of Jesus have validity beyond any other source or person or book. His words have validity. And he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed absolute exclusivity. And he proved that he could do that when he rose from the dead. Amen? Excuse me. There's a cow in my throat or something. Not only that, but the resurrection is the stamp of approval upon the cross from the Father. It says in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that because Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. As we look back in history upon the event of the cross and we try to discern its meaning. God has said that because of the cross, Jesus is exalted to the highest place. He is the name above every name, and all things are put into subjection under him. That is why he wasn't remaining in the grave, but he was risen to new life. He is the risen and exalted one, and it is through his resurrection that we are born again. Did you know that? It is because of the resurrection that we can be born again. It says in 1 Peter 1.3, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, the cross wasn't enough. There had to be the resurrection which placed the stamp of approval from God upon the cross to work that work in our lives of being born again. The resurrection is absolutely everything. I want to look at some particulars in our text now and then we'll talk about the doctrinal significance of the resurrection even further. So starting in Mark chapter 15, we'll back up into last week's text into verse 37, the last three verses from last week. It says in Mark 15, 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last... He said, Truly this man was the Son of God. We read that last week, we didn't get a chance to talk about it. Jesus uttered a loud cry, which the two last things he said on the cross were to tell us die. It is finished, paid in full. Remember, it tells us in 2nd or 2nd Colossians, or Colossians chapter two, rather, that there is a certificate of debt against us. It was hostile to us, and Jesus nailed it to the cross took it out of the way and said, to Tetelestai, paid in full. And then he said, Father, unto thee I yield my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. Remember, no man takes my life from me. I have the authority to lay it down and to take it up. He gave up his spirit. And when the centurion saw this, that Roman commander saw this, coupled with the events that took place, he said, there is no doubt that this was the Son of God. You remember that the sky went dark for three hours. Matthew tells us that there was a great earthquake that took place, that rocks were split in half, and that the tombs around the city were open and saints of old came out of the tombs. After the resurrection, they came into the city and that the temple was shook and the veil of the temple tore in two. When the centurion saw all this, and notice in our text there in verse 39, when he saw the way Jesus breathed his last, he said, this is the Son of God. The way he breathed his last, meaning that he did it willingly, that he gave up his life. Remember what the tauntings were in the previous verses, in verses 30 through 32 from last week? They said, save yourself. If you're really the Messiah, then come down from the cross and save yourself. We understand that if Jesus had saved himself, he would not be able to save anybody else. It is by the fact that he gave himself up that we are saved. In the centurion Psalm that act of willing sacrifice upon the cross and said, this is the Son of God. That's when people are going to see Jesus Christ in your life. When you give yourself up in the same way. When they see the way in which you surrender your life to the Lord and to others, they will say, truly they know the Son of God. Look what happens now in verse 40. And there were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem. We are told here that there were many women who were following Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, with regards to um, uh, social prejudices, broke the barriers. In that culture, in the time, it was unheard of for women to follow a rabbi. Rabbi would have disciples, but they were always men, and they would travel with the rabbi. We know that Jesus traveled extensively back and forth from Jerusalem to Galilee, and we're told that the women traveled along with the disciples. It was unheard of, but Jesus is the barrier breaker. Remember, the New Testament tells us that in Him, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave, nor free man, nor man, nor woman, but we are all one in Christ Jesus. Talk about women liber- women's liberation. Jesus Christ is the one that liberates all of humanity. The ground at the cross is level. Amen? We're told that these women were there at the cross. I want you to know, men, that the men were absent. All the men who said, Jesus, we're willing to go to prison and to death with you when he was arrested, they abandoned him. The only one who showed up at the cross was John. And you'll remember that John was the one who used to recline upon the breast of Jesus Christ when they had a meal. There's a tremendous lesson in that for us, that intimacy yields boldness and faith. John is the one that was reclining upon the breast of Jesus the night before he was crucified, and he was the only male from the disciples that showed up at the cross. And we know from the book of John, chapter 19, that when Jesus looked at John, he said, John, behold your mother, to his mother Mary. And he said, Mary, behold your son. And at that moment, John took Mary away to his household, and she took him in at the command of Jesus. Not only was Mary the mother of Jesus there, but Mary Magdalene was there. We'll talk about her toward the end of the lesson. Um <clears throat> Excuse me, there was someone there called the other Mary. She's called the other Mary in Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one. Sort of a sad designation. But she was the mother of James and Joseph. There was Salome, who was the mother of James and John. She was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Those gnarly disciples, those very bold ones, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them. That was their mama, Salome. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, was there. And the other women who followed him, they were the ones at the cross. Not only are the gospel accounts in the New Testament, Paul commending women at the close of the book of Romans, but church history is full of the stories of faithful women who have stood their ground in the face of the realities of the cross when men have fled. And so the church is today. I thank God for the faithful women. Look, today we sent out four missionaries. They were all women every week we've prayed for missionaries. I think they've all been women for the last several weeks. I praise the Lord for the faithful women in the church and the tremendous and important role that they have. And I beg the Lord that men would step up to the role that God is calling them to. Look now in verse 42. And when evening had already come, because it was a preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. It says in verse 42 that it was the preparation day meaning the day before the Sabbath. The Jews called it the preparation day because, you know, they couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. So anything that needed to be done for Saturday, they would prepare that on Friday. If they had to prepare food, if they had to go out and gather food, if they had to do something with their livestock or some repairs, they would do it on Friday, the day of preparation. But it was also against Jewish law for people to remain on the cross during the Sabbath. And so we know from the account in John that the Jews went to Pilate and said, listen, uh, break the legs of the three men who were on the cross, the two criminals and Jesus Christ, so that we might take them down so they're not still on the cross during the Sabbath. The Sabbath starting at sundown the day before, sundown Friday. And so you know from the gospel account in John that the Roman soldiers came and they broke the legs of the two um, criminals. That would bring about a speedy death. Remember last week I described to you that the person upon the cross died from suffocation, not being able to exhale. And so when they broke their legs, the victim could no longer push himself up to take the weight off the diaphragm and exhale. So they would die a quick death once the legs were broken. They came to Jesus and he was already dead. They didn't have to break his legs. Fulfilling prophecy from the Old Testament that not a bone of his was broken and also fulfilling the foreshadowing of the Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12, God told Israel that when you eat the Passover lamb, you're not to break a single bone in it. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy as the Passover lamb perfectly. And you remember then that the Roman centurion put the spear in his side, penetrating the heart and water and blood came forth from him. Jesus was dead Very important. If Jesus didn't die, then our sins are not paid for. Jesus was dead. There are those throughout history we'll talk about it next week, they've tried to claim he never died, but he fainted, and when they put him in the grave, because it was cool and damp, he revived, and then he came out and said, "I'm resurrected." Jesus died. And Joseph of Arimathea went before Pilate to get the body, according to verse 43. He was a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin. Now, somewhere along the line, we're told in John chapter 19, that he had become a secret disciple of Jesus. He was a Jew. He was in the Sanhedrin, that same body that ruled that Jesus should be put to death. But somewhere along the line of the last three years of Jesus' life, he became a secret follower. He had a horrible failure and that when they called for the death of Jesus Christ, he didn't stand up and say, no, wait a minute. He was there silent while they crucified his Lord. But he gathered up courage at the end and he went and he collected the body of Jesus, being a rich man, and took him to a grave. It says in verse 44, and Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time and summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. We know that the centurion If he made a mistake about Jesus being dead, it would cost him his own life. Testifies to the fact that, yes, Jesus is dead. Verse 45, ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which has been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. We know also from the gospel of John chapter 19, verses 39 through 40, that Nicodemus helped Joseph of Arimathea. Do you remember who Nicodemus was? Nicodemus was also a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's the one who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And he's the one who said, Rabbi, we know that you're from the Lord because nobody could work the works that you work unless they were from God. So tell me, what's the deal? And Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. Unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said, How can a man be born again? Being so old, can he go back into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, No, I'm telling you. Everyone has to be born of flesh and born of the spirit. There must be a second birth to enter heaven. Every person is born of the flesh, not every person is born of the spirit. That is when we come to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. Now, the Bible declares that if you are a sinner, you are spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. God, I'm a sinner, therefore I am spiritually dead. Forgive me of my sins according to what Jesus did upon the cross. At the moment you ask that, God forgives you of your sins and makes you spiritually alive the second birth, being born again. Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will never enter heaven. And so Nicodemus becomes a disciple of Jesus clearly. And Joseph of Arimathea and these two sneaky little Jews come and they take the body and they go and they put it in this tomb that Joseph of Arimathea had prepared. It was one that was hewn out of rock. We will go to the tomb when we go to Israel. The stone is rolled away. We will walk inside the tomb and see where his body laid. And guess what? He won't be there. He is risen. Amen? Amen. Verse 47. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Chapter 16. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So now Saturday has passed by. I imagine that Saturday was the darkest day in history. We know that the disciples had begun to lose faith. excuse me. They weren't thinking about the resurrection. They weren't remembering the words of Jesus. We know that they were gathered together in fear and in trembling. I imagine that was the darkest day for those who had put their hope in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. But now these women who were there at the cross on Sunday morning, the Sabbath being over, they can't do any work on the Sabbath, they approach the tomb and they're going to anoint the body. Um, in, In that climate of the Mediterranean there in Israel, bodies would decay very quickly. And it was customary that they would come and they would unwrap the body and they would put herbs on the body and they would anoint the body and it would sort of delay some of the decaying and some of that odor. The Jews were buried in a tomb for one year. At the end of the year, the oldest son or the next closest of kin would come to the tomb, roll away the stone, gather up the bones, put them in an ossuary, a bone box, and then put them in a little cleft in the rocks inside the tomb. And there were those bones. The Jews did that because they believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they believe that if those bones are gathered, they're in that box facing the Mount of Olives that when Messiah comes, they will be resurrected. God will breathe life to the dry bones. Ezekiel chapter 36 and 37. And so... They came to anoint that body, the body of Jesus. And it says in verse 2, And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed." A young man wearing a white robe, who was it? Matthew chapter 28, verses one through four, tells us that this was an angel. In fact, it tells us that there was an earthquake, that the the stone was rolled away from the tomb, and that when they came, an angel was sitting on top of that rock. Just a declaration of victory that Jesus could not be held by the cords of death. And there is an angel in glory sitting upon the stone that was rolled away. And as they went in, we're told from the other gospel accounts that there was another angel. And the angels speak, and they say in verse 6 Do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. We know that the ladies looked over, and there were the grave clothes still intact. Jesus, having been risen, Now in his glorified body and had walked out of that tomb alive, the angel says, he is not here. He is risen. Now I want us to think for a minute what the resurrection of Jesus Christ affords you and I as Christians. I'm going to give you some doctrinal phrases here, some theological phrases, and I'll define them for you. Number one, doctrinally speaking, the resurrection provides for us our regeneration. Number two, our justification. Number three, our sanctification. And number four, our glorification. What do these things mean? Regeneration speaks of our new nature or our new birth. It is by the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are able to be born again. Justification speaks of our righteous standing before God, that we are declared not guilty and righteous before God. It's because of the resurrection. Sanctification is our growth in holiness or the concept of obedience. And glorification is when we see the Lord face to face and we are in glory even as he is in our resurrected bodies. Now I want to talk about each one of these and how it relates to the resurrection. Number one, regeneration, our new nature. Peter's one who told us that the resurrection and the regeneration are connected. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have been born again, made brand new, made spiritually alive to a living hope. Very important that we realize Jesus Christ is our hope and he is living. If you were walking through a forest and you were somewhat lost, and you were following a path, and it came to a Y. And at the Y on the path, at one side was a dead body sitting there rotting, and on the other side was a man alive and strong and healthy and vibrant. Which way would you be inclined to go? There's so much dead religion today. There's so much religion that offers and says, oh, this is the way and that is the way. Do you know that the Muslims confess that Muhammad is buried in Medina? They think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we tell them that they rose from the dead and they say, that's very interesting that Jesus rose from the dead. We have no information about Muhammad after his death. In fact, the uh, Muslims believe that when Jesus returns, he'll come here on the earth, he'll be here for a short period of time and then he'll die again and be buried, buried next to Muhammad. Not so, but they confess that Muhammad is dead and Jesus is alive. Who should you follow? You choose. You choose. We've been born again to a living hope through or because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, theologically speaking, he earned for us new life. He earned for us eternal life. He earned for us abundant life. It is upon the cross where the certificate of debt was nailed, was paid for, was dealt with. That's where the penalty of sin was dealt with. But it doesn't matter if the sins are dealt with if we don't have the promise of brand new life. And it is his resurrection that gives us that. He earned it for us just as he died a substitutionary death. There is a substitutionary resurrection. And we are identified in his resurrection. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Please go there. Look at this passage, a wonderful passage. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. Verse 1 is the one that I referenced earlier, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 4, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. Please let those words sink in. I don't know why we don't make that personal. It's so personal, it's so profound to us when somebody says, I love you greatly. That resonates with us. This is the word of God to you. Let that resonate with you this morning. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The Bible declares that when Jesus rose from the dead, that is our resurrection, that we have been raised to new life with him. And if that weren't enough, when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and is now seated in the heavenly places, we are seated with him in the heavenly realm. What does that mean? You say, here I am, here we are in Carpinteria. What do you mean we're seated in the heavenlies? It means that in the eyes and in the heart and in the mind of God, your salvation and your place in heaven is a done deal. It is finished. It is secure. He preserves you by his own power and takes us from glory to glory. It is a done deal. You are already seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Amen. Next verse says, why the Lord did it. In order that in the ages to come for eternity, he might show the surpassing richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to save you. He was not obligated. When humanity sinned, God was not somehow obligated to do anything about it. He could have just started over. He could have just said, easy come, easy go. It was easy. He made you out of dust. You're no big deal. But he didn't say, easy come, easy go. He declared his love for us. And he saved us, paid the price for our sins, rose us with Christ, who seated us in the heavenlies so that in the ages to come for an eternity, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness. Grace, his favor, his gifts, his kindness. God is gonna take you to heaven and he is gonna shower love upon you for an eternity. I don't know if you realize that heaven is gonna be like that. We will be worshiping him. We will be showering love upon him, but he will be showering love upon us for eternity. He will be showing you the richness of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God identifies us with Jesus in his resurrection. And so it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We've all got old things, don't we? We've all got old things. Skeletons in our closets, scary things, painful things. The old things have passed away, meaning they no longer have power over you. God has buried them in the deepest sea. Behold, new things have come. He's made us a brand new creation even as Jesus rose from the dead. Justification speaks of our righteous standing before God. I want you to go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. If you haven't read the book of Romans lately, I encourage you to do so. Not too long ago, I taught through the book of Romans. At the college ministry, you go online and get those teachings, or you can get the CDs here. The book of Romans is absolutely phenomenal and life-transforming and theologically rich. But in Romans chapter 4, speaking of our justification because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 25, Romans 4.25, last verse there. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He... Who was delivered up because of our transgressions, was raised up because of our justification. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He was delivered up for our transgressions. He died upon the cross for our sins, but it is in his resurrection that we are justified. Do you understand what it means to be justified? It is more than just being declared innocent. It is much more than that. That is part of justification. We committed sin. We are guilty. And yet when you accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, God declares not guilty. And you could say, I'm guilty all day long. And God will say not guilty because of the blood of Jesus Christ and because we are in him. But it's more than just not guilty. Remember, Jesus lived a perfect life because we could not. And so his perfect life is credited to our accounts. You understand that? His righteousness is imputed to us or accredited to us by faith, it says there. Not because of anything we've done or haven't done, but by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the fact that he died and rose again. When we do that, his perfect life is credited to our accounts. Remember, there was a certificate of debt against such, which was hostile. The declaration of the sins that we have committed, uh, the Bible declares that God kept record of every one of them. Gee whiz, that ought to terrify you. Unless you remember justification by faith. The moment you come to Jesus, those old deeds are absolutely erased. In fact, the wording in the Bible is blotted out. They can't be brought back. Blotted out. Erased from the hard drive. They are gone. Blotted out. And then the perfect account of Jesus Christ's life is pulled up on the screen. Right click. Copy. They open up our now blank page of life. Right click. Paste. Paste. And there is the perfect righteousness of Jesus in your book. And because you are in Christ, God will treat you wonderfully for eternity as if you lived his perfect life. Amen? And it says in verse 2 of Romans 5, speaking of Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in the hope of the glory of God the grace in which we stand our standing before God is one of grace undeserved favor day to day christianity day to day christianity you wonder what is my standing before God today yesterday i was good today i was bad well, I've been bad all week long. You need to get away from that in the name of Jesus. There's no such thing as a good Christian or a bad Christian. There is only a sinner saved from hell by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are not a good Christian or a bad Christian. You are a Christian by the grace of God. And so if you were bad all week long, oh, no, what is my standing before God? It is a standing according to grace, Romans five two, unmerited favor, that he looks at you because you are in Christ Jesus Because you have been forgiven. And he says, wonderful. I am absolutely satisfied with you today. But Lord, I I didn't read my Bible today. I'm satisfied with you. Lord, I, I deliberately did something wrong today. I am satisfied with you. It doesn't remove the need for repentance. But positionally before God... He is stoked on you. He is pleased with you because of what Christ Jesus did upon the cross. By faith, not performance. If you begin to think that your standing before God is according to your performance, you are undone. You will live a miserable Christian life and then you will die and go to heaven. But if you begin to realize (laughs) that your standing before God is according to grace and faith, you will live a rich, rewarding life and then you will die and go into glory. Amen? Amen. Sanctification, number three, sanctification. Our growing in holiness. There are two parts of sanctification. When you are born again, you are immediately sanctified, meaning you are made holy. You are set apart for God. Uh, The Bible always declares Christians to be called saints not in the sense that the Catholic Church thinks of it or other churches that there was someone in the past and they did really great things and they are a saint. That is not biblical. The biblical idea of a saint is someone who has been born again. They have been sanctified. They have been made holy. We are all the saints of God. That is the biblical definition. So that happens immediately when you're born again, but then there's a second part to sanctification. You might call it progressive sanctification. That is growing in holiness, Growing in character and growing in obedience. And we do this because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 6 now. Romans chapter 6. Starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Meaning that through baptism we identify with the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory or the power of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That idea of newness meaning a fresh quality of life. Verse 5, for if we have become united or identified with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Sorry for the Muslims. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died once for all. He died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, or in the same way, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, or in response to the resurrection, do not allow sin to reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are risen to new life in Him a freshness of quality of life, the power of sin being broken. And so we're told in verse 11, consider or reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. And yet when you are tempted with sin, what is the response? Do not let sin reign in you. Don't let it. Christians, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the power that is available to you and I to live the resurrected life. It is the same power. And so we consider ourselves dead to sin, but when sin tempts us, and it will always tempt us until we go to be in heaven, when it tempts us, we do not let it. We say no. And we say no, not according to our own power, but according to the power that rose Jesus from the dead, according to the power that is working in us to do according to his will. That is the power of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. We are able to say no and to stand firm, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. That is a power that has been given to us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Are you walking in newness of life? Are you walking in the power of the resurrection? Or are you presenting yourself to unrighteousness? The last verse says, stop presenting yourself to unrighteousness. You don't have to find trouble. Trouble will always find you. God said to Cain in the Old Testament, behold, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Sin is always crouching at your door and its desire is for you. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Don't present yourself to it. Don't give the flesh an opportunity. Rather say no and then present yourselves to God as an instrument of righteousness. It's not just enough to say no to evil. Then we've got to do the positive part of it and say yes to good, yes to God, and say, God, you use me. Man, we were used by Satan in the old life, weren't we? We were used by Satan in the old life, and now we have been brought from out under his authority, and we have been placed in the kingdom of the beloved son. And so we ought to wake up every morning and go, here I am reporting for duty, sir an instrument of righteousness, a vessel for honor. Use me, God. God will always respond to that. Colossians chapter 3 uh, says this. You can go there if you'd like. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, the first couple verses tell us exactly how to respond with regards to sanctification and Jesus' resurrection. Colossians 3, 1. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's how we're to live daily. If we have been resurrected with Him, then live the resurrected life. Keep seeking the things that are above. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Set your mind on these things, not on the things that are on earth. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Because we are bombarded by the things of the world from every direction every single day, and yet the biblical mandate is don't let your mind dwell on those things. You are seated in the heavenlies. Put your mind there. Put your mind on the things of Christ. Verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And there is a last point. The resurrection from Jesus Christ buys our glorification. Our glorification. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. 2 Corinthians 4.14 He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. It's speaking of bodily resurrection. The Lord has been ministering to me lately how important our bodies are. I've been one who in my life, I really kind of neglected that concept. And the Lord's really been busting me on that. That when he created me, he created me body, mind, and spirit. And they are all important to God and they are all to be submitted to God and God has a plan for all of them. That after we die, if you are a Christian, this body will be raised a new body, a glorified body, like the body that Jesus was in when he rose from the dead. The Bible is explicit about that. That is, God formed you in your mother's womb, your body has a value to him. It is his creation. And he will resurrect it on the last day. It will be different, but it will be knowable. It will be imperishable. It will be incorruptible. We will be raised in glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you go there, tells us exactly when this happens. 1 Corinthians 15. By the way, your homework is to read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15. The whole chapter is about the resurrection. I want you to read it all. It's rather long. We're just going to look at the last eight verses right now with regards to the timing of us being glorified. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body, right here, is not suitable for eternity. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Remember, we spoke about the fact that that is a first century Jewish euphemism for die, uh, Christian euphemism for die. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. What event is it speaking about here? Oh, please, people. What event is this? Tell me again. What event is this? Praise the Lord. The rapture, the blessed hope, the hope of the church, the coming of the groom for the bride. At that moment, we are told that those Christians who have died, the dead in Christ, will rise first, and they will rise to their glorified body, and in a twinkling, in the twinkling of an eye, in an instant, in a moment, we who are alive shall be changed. We shall be caught up into the sky, and we shall meet the Lord, and in an instant, we will be transformed to glory. It is the rapture of the church. It's going to be unbelievable. People that have died, they will be resurrected. Their spirits are already with the Lord. The Bible declares emphatically and explicitly, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Their spirits are with the Lord. But that body at that moment of the rapture of the church will be resurrected wherever it is. Were they cremated? Don't worry about it. God can deal with it. Were they eaten by crocodiles? Don't worry about it. God can deal with it. They will be resurrected. We will be changed in an instant. We shall meet the Lord in the sky, and so we shall ever be with the Lord. That is a blessed hope. Are you living in daily expectation of this? You've got to be mindful of that and the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that we will be resurrected into glory, and we got to live in daily expectation. It says in the next verse, verse 53, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, when we're in our glorified bodies, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is a law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Look what we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Glorification, sanctification, justification, regeneration. Everything that salvation is hinges upon the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see as we close now in Mark 15. I want you to see something absolutely astounding. We finished in, uh, I'm sorry, 16, Mark 16. The last verse we read was verse 6. And he said to them, the angel, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. Look at me. Don't look at the next verse. Look at me, 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 look at me. The angel knowing, God knowing everything that the resurrection would mean for the followers of Jesus Christ. I want you to see who heaven is most anxious to deliver this news to. Next verse. The angel says, "But go tell his disciples and Peter. Tell his disciples and Peter, the last words we have Peter saying in the gospel account is, May God kill me and damn me if I'm lying, I don't know Jesus Christ. And the first words from heaven after the resurrection are, Go tell Peter he is risen. The Lord wants those who seem furthest from him to be the first to know the good news of the regeneration, the justification the sanctification and the glorification. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for with fear and trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Verse nine. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went out and reported to those who had been with him. And while they were mourning and weeping, and when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. The first person that the news was to be delivered to was Peter. The first person that saw Jesus Christ was Mary Magdalene. She was a woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of. Look at the heart of God. Look at the heart of God. When he rose from the dead, he did not reveal himself to a righteous man. He did not reveal himself to a religious man. He didn't reveal himself to someone that was important or a leader. He revealed himself to a woman who had been tormented by demons and immorality. This is the first person that was to see the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at the heart of our God. Look at the heart of our God. And here's where we end. Verse uh, 12. And after that, he appeared in a different form to two of them. While they were walking along on their way to the country. And they went away and reported to the others, but they did not believe them either. Next, people he revealed himself to were two of the supposed disciples. They were leaving Jerusalem, their hopes were shattered. They had thought that Jesus was the disciple. And now seeing that he was crucified, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to the country. They've lost all hope in his possibility to save. They've lost all hope in his possibility to deliver Israel. They've lost all hope in him being the king and the savior and the redeemer. All they could see was the grave and the death. They didn't wait for the resurrection. Listen to me. Get your eyes off of the things in life that are dying and dead and full of dead bones and get your eyes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appeared to those who had lost hope. He didn't send an ambassador. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a disciple or an apostle or a prophet. Jesus Christ himself met them upon the road. And he revealed himself to these men on the road to Emmaus. Luke 23, read about it later. Who had lost all hope. And he went into a home and he broke bread with them. And when he broke bread, it says in Luke 23 that their eyes were opened and they saw the Lord and they believed in his resurrection. Peter Mary Magdalene and the two on the road to Emmaus. That is who the Lord is concerned with. That is who he wants to reveal his risen glory to. If that's you, know that you're not far from God. He's near to the brokenhearted. He's near to the downcast. And know that he is risen, that you might have fresh life. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness and your power. Thank you, God, that you rose Jesus from the dead, that we might have new life. I simply pray right now, Lord, that if anybody in the sanctuary has not been given that gift of eternal life, that they would realize their need to repent. And that, Lord, as they say, God, I'm a sinner, please forgive me. You would flood their hearts with grace. That you would regenerate them that you would justify them, that you would declare them righteous and innocent and holy and pleasing before you. Lord, that there would come that work of sanctification, that you would work a new work in their lives. And thank you, Lord, that you are faithful to bring us to glory. Lord, we realize that some of us this morning, we, we feel far off. Jesus, you said that the Father is seeking those who will worship you in spirit and in truth. Some of us are struggling with doubt, even as the disciples did here. I believe that if that's you, this is your day. That if you're struggling with doubt, the Lord is not bummed about that. He's calling you to press in. Remember that when he appeared to Thomas, he invited Thomas to press his fingers into his wounds. I invite you to press your fingers into the wounds of Jesus Christ this morning to come and take the bread in your hand. To dip it in the cup, to feel the picture of that flesh in your hands and pronounce once again, Lord, I believe. I believe I am saved. I believe you have a plan. I believe you are resurrecting the horrors and the deaths and the bad things in my life. You can do it for Mary Magdalene and Peter. You can do it for me. And in faith, receive all that the Lord has for you. The Lord is looking for those who will worship him in the spirit and the truth. So let's draw near to him in sincerity. Let's ask for everything that he has for us. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. If you have any needs this morning, God can meet them through the power of the resurrection. Come forward and get prayer. If you feel far off, you need to come forward. You need to get on this carpet and put your face in it and worship the Lord you have doubts, you need to take the flesh in your hand and ingest it and remember the promises of God. But let's do business with